Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. John 19, and our guest reading this morning is my mother. I'm so excited to jump back into this series with you and thrilled that you're here this morning with us. Uh, Why don't you join me? Let's pray and then we'll read together. Father, we do thank you that we can be here together knowing that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And Jesus, we're up on a Sunday to gather and to worship you because we want to be with you, because we believe that you're worthy of our worship, and because, God, we believe that you have a transforming power at work in our lives. And God, we're inviting that power, the power of your Spirit, to move in our midst. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking you to touch lives, to transform hearts, and to speak to us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. John 19. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is also called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To each soldier soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. You know, if you know me well, you're probably aware that I am, unfortunately, a very easily embarrassed person, Um, which means that I could write a long, very cringy book of all of the things uh, that I've done that I wish that I hadn't have done. Stupid, regretful things, embarrassing, cringy things, uh, things that often I find myself playing on repeat in my head, uh, which is not always a very fun experience. It's not just limited to the things that I've done. It's also so often the things that I'm reliving in my head in this cringy, awful way are things that I've said, really that I shouldn't have said or that I've wished that I wouldn't have said that I could take back. And I won't give you an example and let that be evidence that this is true about me, that I really am that easily embarrassed. But you could ask my wife and she'll tell you that oftentimes we'll be driving as a family and as I'm driving, she'll see out of the corner of 
her eye, my whole body tense up and me just kind of wince in pain. And she'll say, what did you remember this time? I'd like to think that I've gotten better, uh, but I'll let her be the judge of that and you'll have to ask her. You know, the little statement that Jesus makes, now we're on the fifth of seven statements from the cross, the one that we just read in this moment, is something that for me as I approach it and look at it, it's something I can't help but wonder, is this something that just kind of slipped out that maybe Jesus wishes he hadn't have said? Because in the middle of this series, so far as we've walked through this series on the cross, we're looking at the implications of the cross and the way that we're finding our teaching on the implications, what the cross accomplished for us, is we're looking at the powerful statements that Jesus made from the cross. And they are powerful. You remember the first one, as he was first placed on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. It's a massive statement, praying for his enemies. But then you remember, it wasn't just that petition. It would then be the promise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He's addressing forgiveness for humanity, paradise that can be promised to us. But then he's also addressing the family of God that we're invited into. You remember, he would look at his friend, as we just read here, and say, son or woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. He's talking about the family we're brought into. And then the mystery of all mysteries, the one we discussed last week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are powerful, powerful statements that Jesus makes that we've taken all sorts of time to try to open up and understand and plunge the depths of their meaning, especially that last one just last week, so pregnant with meaning. But these words at first glance, they can almost seem like a waste where they almost look kind of empty and without significance, without meaning or value. Look again at your Bible at John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he simply says, I thirst. I thirst. Two words in English, it's actually just one word in Greek. All Jesus said in this moment, as he pulled himself upwards on his cross, he simply said, thirsty. That's it, just that just thirsty. For us, we can read it and go, is this even a question or is this a statement? But there's four things that I'd love for us to slow down and consider that we learn about Jesus from this statement that Jesus makes regarding his thirst. The first is this, that Jesus was suffering a very real physical need. In this moment, the God that we've become Uh, aware of and acquainted with, who's walked among us. In scripture, it says that he clothed himself in flesh and moved into the neighborhood, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God is now crying out in physical pain and agony. This is Jesus, the first thought from this, when he's crying out, simply saying, thirsty. Jesus was suffering a very real physical need. I mean, think about when Jesus said this. We know from the story that he's been through an awful lot leading up to this point beginning with agony in the garden, dealing with intense anxiety and stress and a strain that's emotionally taxing on his system. In fact, it's causing his system to haywire in that moment. And then he's arrested and taken from the garden to the religious leaders where he's unjustly beaten. And they mock him saying, as they place a bag over his head, oh, prophesy who hits you. And then he's turned over to the Romans where he's scourged. And then they place a crown of thorns upon his head and beat it into place. And then he carried the cross to the place called Calvary, where his strength on the way gave out and failed him. And then his robe would be ripped off his back, reopening those wounds again until his hands and his feet were pierced, nailing him to the cross. Having suffered by now so much pain and blood loss, Jesus then spends six hours on the cross. 
probably stripped down naked, exposed uh, to the elements. And, and three hours of that six-hour period were spent in the sun as the heat of the day was arriving between nine and noon. But then at noon for the next three hours, it's a period of complete and, and total darkness that surrounded the cross. You need to remember that this happened, Jesus crying out, just thirsty. But this happened after Jesus had suffered so much physical pain. But we also know this, it's not just after he suffered pain, but we also know from what the scriptures tell us that this is happening. He's crying out thirsty. After he recognizes, it says here, that all things were accomplished, it says in verse 28. It wasn't just that Jesus said this after he'd suffered a lot, but also after he realized that what he had set out to do to pay for my sin and yours, what he had set out to do was done and accomplished. And then Jesus was mindful of his own need. And I'll bet you've experienced this, at least a little something like this. And, and forgive me, please be gracious with me for using such a simplistic and trivial example of this. But my youngest, or my son, the middle child in our family, he had a little birthday party this weekend with some of his buddies. And part of what they did together was play video games. And I happened to walk by them playing a video game right as their round finished. And they finished the level together. And then I watched my son throw the remote behind him and sprint towards the bathroom. Because he wasn't aware of just how necessary a bathroom break was until he finally got through the thing he was hyper-focused on. Once he got through the hyper-focused moment with his friends, then all of a sudden, there was a break and a lull, and he was instantly aware of his own need for something, a need for a restroom. And now, just as simplistic, just as trivial a comparison would be the question of how many of you have ever stopped shopping because your feet hurt? But many of us, after we've stopped shopping, I'm going to fact check that later, by the way. <clears throat> many of us, because I don't want to stereotype or generalize, so I'll put myself in there, even though I'm more of an online shopper myself. Uh, many of us, though, have probably finished a shopping trip, and once we sat down, what was one of the first things we said? Oh, my feet are killing me. You know, often we find ourselves focused in life on things, and because of that, we end up neglecting some of the simple needs we have. This is a very simple comparison, I know. But think of Jesus in this moment. Once he had taken our sin and paid the full penalty for it, once he had made sure that our needs were met on a massive and painful scale, then he became mindful of his own needs for the first time on the cross. Six hours in is the first time we hear Jesus say anything about himself or for himself, it's in the moment that he realizes his own great thirst and simply cries out, thirsty. Six hours before this, when Jesus was first put on the cross at 9 a.m., your Bible tells you that he was offered a drink, actually, in that moment. It tells you it's a mixture, a mixture of wine and gall. It's liver bile. It's poison. It's something that would be used to deaden the pain, to numb his mind. But Jesus in that moment rejected it, needing to stay sharp and choosing, wanting to be alert. Jesus was determined to taste and experience the full weight of our sin, of our shame, and of the punishment that we deserve. And now six hours later, shortly after 3 p.m., once the lights have come back on, Jesus now in this moment, moment is heard saying the simple word, thirsty. And someone who was around the cross, it says, grab some sour wine. This is old wine that's turned into vinegar, and they place 
a sponge atop a reed and make a little extension for that sponge to reach up and hold it against the lips of Jesus, where we picture him being so weak and feeble that he can barely begin to sponge at that or to, to bite and nibble at that sponge to get some liquid off of it, to, to get some liquid down his throat to parch his or to help to cure his thirst. It's a humble moment. Some suggest about this humble moment that the sponge that's used here, and the bucket, in fact, as well, were actually just the simplistic uh, porta potty of some of the soldiers who were nearby. And that the ancient toilet paper on a stick was a sponge that they offered to Jesus. And so some suggest that this was a merciless act done by the soldiers again to mock him. While others will point out, if you look at different commentaries, that there was a practice of a reed and a sponge being used during Passover, which this is that moment, remember, where they would dip that sponge in the blood of an animal and reach it up onto their doorpost, commemorating what God had done back in Egypt in the book of Exodus, where God delivered his people, allowing judgment to pass over them because they applied the blood of a substitute and sacrifice in their place. And now the substitute and sacrifice for our sins atop a cross has it lifted towards him and towards his own bloody face. We really don't know where the sponge came from. It's just conjecture. But historians seem to make clear what's being offered to Jesus here. You see, soldiers from Rome, historians tell us, were getting sick from the water and the bacteria in the water in this region of the world. And so what they began to do is they'd mix vinegar in with the water to help to neutralize the bacteria to keep them from getting sick which then paints a far less cruel or vindictive picture. The picture that's painted then is a portrait of one of these soldiers being moved in some way with compassion and sharing, in a sense, his canteen with Jesus, allowing Jesus to share a drink with him. Now, why did he say it? What do we learn from this? Well, very clearly, what we learn is that Jesus, when he cries out, simply thirsty, that Jesus is suffering a very real physical need. It's amazing. We believe in something called the hypostatic union. We believe that God is, is fully God in this moment, that Jesus is, and that at the same time, he is simultaneously fully a man. That those two, two amazing, unique, distinct things exist in one entity in this moment. For me, I, I'm Trevor O'Keefe, but I am half Shada and half O'Keefe. As a Shada, I'm half German with a little Croatian and maybe some Irish as well. But as an O'Keefe, I'm 100% O'Keefe or 100% Irish on that side of the family. But the two blended together is who I am, kind of 50-50 of those two families. But Jesus was so different. Jesus was completely, fully, 100% God in human flesh. His humanity and his deity are pairing in this powerful way, and his humanity in this moment is suffering a tragic real need. We can wonder as we think through something like the hypostatic union, as theologians call it, we can say, how is this even possible? I mean, how does this work? Here's what the Bible says about this. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in flesh. You know, I referenced this book several weeks ago that I'd begun to read. Uh, it's entitled, What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. It's written by a medical doctor who had lectured and even led a seminary course through the physical suffering of Jesus, viewed through the eyes of a physician. And he wrote about this moment where Jesus cries out in thirst. 
He specifically writes about the extreme dehydration dehydration Jesus would have endured, emphasizing that the combination of Jesus experiencing cruel beatings and now exposure to the elements after already having suffered through hematidosis, where he's sweating great drops of blood, something that this doctor points at and says, that's the byproduct of a flood of adrenaline that's released in a human body under extreme duress when a fight or flight a response manifests so powerfully in someone that they're so overcome with adrenaline that it causes this physical uh, response in your system. And so he wrote, because of all of that, Jesus would experience extreme dehydration, and with it, he would have experienced disorienting dizziness, that he would have also had bouts of potentially confusion or fogginess, where it was difficult for him to be clear because of the agony that he's going through and the dehydration he's suffering with that he experienced strong heart palpitations as his body is beginning now to wig out and be frantic, that he would have suffered a severe splitting headache because of this and debilitating, excruciating muscle cramps, specifically in his legs while hanging on the cross because of this dehydration. And so Jesus, in terrible agony, is crying out for relief from that suffering for just a drink to address the pain he endured and the miserable symptoms that stemmed from that dehydration. So he called out simply with the word, thirsty. Simply put, Jesus said, I thirst because as a human, as a man, he's suffering deeply. He's crying out this way because he really was thirsty. He deeply needed a drink. Some of you are starting to wonder why you got out of bed this morning to come to church and hear someone tell you something so obvious that Jesus suffered a real physical need and that's why he cried out for physical relief from that need. But the reason I tell you this is the second thing. Yes, that Jesus suffered a very real physical need, but the reason that's so significant is because it then gives me confidence that Jesus was suffering here, feeling what I feel. That's the second thing. When Jesus cries out, I thirst, what am I meant to take from this moment? It's, some, it's supposed to leave me with the confidence that my God understands the things that I endure, that he feels the things that I feel. Oh, I don't want to trivialize what Jesus endured on the cross. He suffered in a way and to a degree that I will never, ever experience. Because of his suffering, though, I can be certain that Jesus felt the things that I feel and then some. You see, it's been said that to be human is to suffer. And even God who became a man was not immune to suffering. And I'll just tell you for me personally, that's huge. It's huge because I I don't want to worship and follow a God that doesn't understand my suffering, who has intentionally distanced himself from it. It's difficult to relate to a God like that. It's difficult to bend a knee that direction to someone just as a subservient rather than someone that I'm looking at with love in his eyes who'd enter into my pain and begin to understand what it's like to be human and know then how to care for us because of that. You see, this teaches me, I think, that Jesus is God enough to save and yet human enough to understand. I think this moment really does teach us that Jesus is God enough to save and yet human enough to understand. He's God enough to rescue me and human enough simultaneously to get me. He's God enough to remedy and yet human enough to feel with me and for me. Think of it this way. I worship a God who refused to be immune to suffering, 
who is willing to taste it, to experience, experience it, to walk through human suffering with us. It's a crazy thing to process that God who walked among us would, in John's gospel, the same gospel we're finding the statement that Jesus makes from a cross, that he's thirsty, in that same gospel, Jesus promised living water, ultimate satisfaction that would leave someone never thirsting again, and yet now he's crying out in agony, asking those around him if they'd only give him just a simple drink. You see, Jesus did not just identify in our sin, absorbing it within himself, he also identified with us in our suffering, in all of our pain, in all of our disappointment, in every bit of your agony. In fact, here we find God incarnate suffering, when you think about it, in the lowest form of human misery and misfortune. To die as if he's in this moment in such poverty that a need as humble and simple as water is something that escapes him and is a part of his dying breath. For Christ did not allow for anyone to suffer in a lower form than he, where God left heaven and takes on in this moment even the lowest of, of, of forms of suffering that humanity can ever face, even just the, the lack of ability just to have just a droplet of water. You see, no one can say that there's none that have suffered as I. For Christ chose to suffer more and deeper than all, crying out in the previous statement, in utter desolation, in utter isolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now suffering the lowest and humblest form, longing for just a droplet of water. Now think about this. If this is true about God, the God that the Bible presents to us, the God who you get to choose to serve, if this is true, are you willing to trust the God who willingly entered even into the lowest form of human suffering, even into your suffering, are you willing to trust him? I mean, do you remember in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah? He's famous, most famous for this showdown he has with the 450 prophets of Baal. But do you remember what happened right after that moment? Where a woman, a single person, She's the queen of the land, Jezebel herself. She threatens to kill him. She says, it's the, I'm not giving up until he's gone. I'm going to take his life. And he flees. He runs off into isolation, far away, hiding in a cave. And when God shows up and begins to speak to him, he asks him, what are you doing here? Think of the question. He's asking him, look at what you've just seen. Why the fear? Where's your faith? And Elijah responds saying, I'm all alone. There's no one else who's left beside me. No one knows or cares or understands or can help me. And God tells him in that moment that he's dead wrong. That there are many others who still had refused to bow their knee to the false gods of the land. That there are still so many who had chosen just to honor and worship the one true and living God. Now track with me. I think so many of us have had the valley on the other side of a mountain experience where we felt this way. Where yeah, sure, we've seen God do something in moments, but after that, we find ourselves in a dark valley, sitting alone, convinced that there's no one else in the world that can relate to the sorrow that we feel or the pain that we're enduring. And the truth is, it's possible that I personally might not understand. 
I might not understand what you're facing even today. Even it's possible that the people seated around you today, they might not fully get the adversity that you're up against or the struggle that you feel, but you're dead wrong in saying that no one does. Because if nothing else, Jesus understands. If nothing else, God can relate. In fact, the scriptures say it this way in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Jesus, our high priest. You know that the job of a high priest is to represent man to God and God back to man. They bridge that gap. And Jesus was a man just like us. He dealt with all the same frustrations and temptations and all the suffering we deal with. So we now know with confidence that he understands our pain, our difficulty, our frustration, even our temptations. He experienced every emotion that you faced. I mean, the Bible tells us that he was weary, that he was angry, that he was compassionate. He was joyful. He was sorrowful. He was tempted. He was even thirsty. Hebrews 4 tells us that because Jesus was a man just like you and I, now God can sympathize with us. It's a beautiful word. It means to suffer with. That that's what he does. So that we, like Elijah, can no longer say that, that there's no one who understands things like a dysfunctional family or abandonment or betrayal or finding yourself alone or in agony. Jesus understands those things. We cannot say, well, even if he understands, how do I know that he cares? Because Romans 5.8 says that he demonstrated his love for us by going to a cross. This moment shows not just that he understands, but this moment on the cross shows just how deeply he cares for us. Oh, but we say, but even if someone understands and cares for me, can they really do anything to remedy this, to help me, to rescue me? We're talking about God Almighty in front of us here. The Bible says he, he's so big and vast and capable, he holds the universe in the span of his hand. Remember, Jesus is God enough to save and yet human enough in this moment to understand. Author A.W. Pink in his book about the seven statements of Jesus from the cross, here's what he wrote. He said, the cross shows us that God is not ignorant of our sorrows. For in the person of his son, he has himself borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, as Isaiah 53 verse 4 says. The cross shows us God is not unmindful of our distress and anguish. For becoming incarnate, he suffered himself. The cross tells us God is not indifferent to pain. For in the Savior, he experienced it. You see, the fact that we see Jesus suffering physically, it reminds us that Jesus can sympathize with us in our pain, in our sorrow, in our suffering. Yes, he lived a life like you and I so that he could feel and experience what it's like to be one of us, able to sympathize and relate to us. In fact, Hebrews 4 says, if this is true, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I've told you before, it's this beautiful word picture that's used there when it says that he can help us. That, that Greek word that's used there of the help that Jesus gives us because of his ability to understand is 
that Greek word is found one other place in the New Testament, and it's in Acts 27, where Paul is on a ship that's running aground and breaking apart board by board, but they threw a cable, it's that word for help, a cable around the boat and cinched it off tight to hold it all together. So as waves were crashing, as the storm was raging, as it was falling apart and beginning to sink, and maybe you feel this way, where everything feels like it's against you and you feel like you're bursting at the seams, we go boldly to his throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And that help is him holding things together again. It's this beautiful word picture. Peter would write in 1 Peter 5 verse 7, he says, cast your cares on him knowing that he cares about what happens to you. Please hear me tell you that Jesus is God enough to save and yet human enough to understand. Remember, there's four things from this fifth saying that are worth us thinking about. The first is that he suffered a very real physical need. And the second thing is that he endured that suffering and pain, leaving us with a confidence that he understands. But the third thing is so very important, and that's that Jesus in this moment, he's suffering for a purpose. Jesus suffered for a purpose. In fact, in verse 28, it says that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus would speak up and say, I thirst. He'd simply speak up and say thirsty. You see, the Old Testament had predicted and prophesied about each detail concerning Jesus' death on the cross. In Psalm 41 verse 9, it would prophesy that he would be betrayed by a familiar friend or that he'd be forsaken by his followers in Psalm 31 verse 11, that he'd be falsely accused, that's Psalm 35 verse 11, that he'd be silent before his judges, Isaiah 53 verse 7, that he'd have his hands and his feet pierced, Psalm 22 verse 16 that he'd be mocked by spectators, Psalm 109, verse 25, that they would taunt him because he wasn't delivered from his pain, that's Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8, that his garments would be gambled for, Psalm 22, verse 18, that he'd be praying for his enemies in the midst of his agony, Isaiah 53, verse 12, that he would cry out saying that he's been forsaken even by God, Psalm 22, verse 1, that his bones in that moment would remain unbroken, Psalm 34, verse 20, that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, verse 9. There are even prophecies regarding this moment, Jesus suffering thirst. Psalm 69, verse 3, my throat is dry. Psalm 22, verse 14 and 15, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. When you hang the weight of your body, hanging, sagging on those nails, One of the first things that would happen, so many tell us, as the weight of your body would sag, is that it would dislocate your shoulders out of place. This is exactly what this is describing. Jesus uh, would be prophesied of this moment. Psalm 22, again, it says that my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. It's talking about a sun-baked piece of clay, that that's how dry his mouth has become. And my tongue clings to my jaws, for you have brought me to the dust of death. Or Psalm 69, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food. Remember, that's that liver bile poison they offered him when he first went to a cross. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. The prophets had foretold of this moment. Now hear me though, the divine eternal purpose of those ancient prophecies was to show us beyond any doubt that the crucifixion was planned in the mind of God from the beginning. Please hear me. It's not just that he said this because he knew that the prophets had foretold it. He's saying this in this moment and the prophets foretold it to show that this was something that existed in the mind of God since creation itself was first dawned and began. 
Jesus had said it this way in John's gospel, chapter 10. He said, I lay my life down for my sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. One commentary uh, beautifully said it this way, emphasizing this moment of Christ's thirst, saying, the crucifixion was not an accident. It's not a mistake, not an unfortunate slip up. It is the deliberate self-offering of the good shepherd. And so when he says, I thirst, it is to show that he is fulfilling his purpose according to the plan of God from the beginning. You see, his purpose in experiencing thirst and suffering great pain was not just to fulfill some prophecy, but to save humanity. That was the reason, the goal all along. So hear me say this, if that's true, then Jesus' suffering was for a purpose, and so is yours. Your suffering is also for a purpose. You see, please hear me on this. I would never say that all our suffering is caused by God, but I would say that all of our suffering undoubtedly can be used by God. Because the prophet Isaiah said that he brings beauty from ashes. Or Paul the apostle would write in the book of Romans that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Please hear me say, I don't believe that scripture says that God is the cause of all of your suffering. However, it is perfectly clear in promising that God is more than capable of redeeming and using all of your suffering. Remember today that your suffering, it's not exclusive. That other people and God himself understand and care and can help. Oh, remember today that your suffering is not necessarily disciplined. It doesn't necessarily mean that God is mad at you or done with you because life is hard. On oh, your suffering, remember today that your suffering is not without reason, that God is able to do in to use what you endure for good. My friends, if we have a God who's great enough that we find ourselves having the expectation that He stop all of our suffering, if we really believe Him to be so great and capable that we're even angry at Him for not intervening to stop our suffering, then couldn't He be? Ought we to admit that maybe, just maybe, he's also great enough for and, and having reasons for allowing it that we haven't considered or that we couldn't understand? You see, Jesus' suffering in this moment was for a purpose, and I believe that yours is too. You see, I suffer, we suffer, hurt, weep, and mourn, knowing that God stands with us and cares for us, and knowing that God has done something for us to remedy those moments. I'm not just comforted that God cares. Please hear me. I can suffer and mourn with hope because he came. I'm not just comforted that he cares. I can mourn and suffer with hope because he came. See, you and I, we can question God's care, his goodness, his justice. We can say this isn't fair, this isn't right. And we can say, why didn't you intervene and heal? or step in and make it right, or step in and make them whole? Why didn't you help or intervene? God provides not the answer to the intellectual dilemma that we face. Instead, he provides the resolution to the problem itself. He didn't give us an explanation. He gave us himself from heaven. That's the power of the gospel. That God came to suffer and die to rid the world of sin and sickness and death once and for all. 
And I'll tell you, there are moments in time where for me, I don't always feel that God is off the hook for the brokenness in our world, that he's off the hook for the suffering in our world. Because things still hurt, they're still hard. And it's still disappointing that some of these things exist in our world, that the pain that we face is a part of our lives. But in those moments, I have to stop and remind myself that God essentially put himself on the hook for the world's suffering. He didn't have to, but he did it anyways. He suffered to save me from sin and to end all suffering once and for all. And that's such a powerful truth. Lindsay and I met with a young couple this week uh, doing some pre-marriage counseling. And as we were leaving, we ran into a dear friend. And we're so glad that we saw her. You see, for this young woman and her husband, they've been on a very long and painful journey wanting to bring a baby into their home and finding that they've really had a struggle doing that. And she told us, she said, I've been trying for years to answer the why. To answer the why in our journey through infertility. And these are incredible people who are using their story and their own sorrow. They're using it to minister to other people and to encourage other people to comfort others as they also walk through this journey, a painful journey. I told her as I listened that sometimes I think we search for the answer to our why questions with no good answers in sight. That we can search and hunt and wait and hope, but maybe never get the kind of answer we're looking for. You see, I've learned over time that Christianity does not explain or give the reason for each individual experience of pain that I face. It does, however, promise that God will redeem it and can use it for good. Christianity also does provide resources to help and comfort us through that painful road. And Christianity presents and proves God's great plan and care, the plan to end all suffering once and for all, The harsh reality is that although I've made a decision to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, it does not give me an explanation for the why every time I suffer. But as a follower of Jesus, I always know what the answer is not. The answer is never that he doesn't care. This moment is the reason I have that confidence. God cared so deeply about my misery and suffering that he was willing to take it upon himself. You know, I personally, I told my friend, I I may never be happy with or thankful for some of the ways I've suffered or some of the pain that I've had to endure in my life as a person. I have, however, by the grace of God, come to see that those pains, that sorrow may have begun to give me more than they cost me because they've given me a deeper level of intimacy and faith with Jesus. And they've given me a much deeper level of empathy and care for others. You see, I think it's a powerful thing in this moment that we're reminded that Jesus suffered for a purpose and that our suffering carries with it a purpose as well. You see, Jesus suffered in this moment a very real physical need. And because of that, we're left with the confidence that he understands us. But it's also a reminder here that there's purpose in pain. Okay, now we're almost done. Here's the last thing. And I run the risk of sounding like a bit of a crazy person on this one. So please bear with me and hear me out. The other thing that this statement where Jesus cries out and just says thirsty. He's requesting that someone around him would bring him the solution to his deep longing. One of the things this teaches us, I think, is that Jesus is still suffering. One of the things I'm reminded of when I look at this is that Jesus is still suffering. 
It was a couple of years ago that I was reading about Mother Teresa, a person who is known for her willingness to give up her life every day in the service of the poorest of poor in the world, living shoulder to shoulder with them in their poverty. It was this statement of Jesus from the cross where he cries out thirsty that it so struck her. It's what caused her to choose to live her life for others. Here's how one author wrote about her. He said it this way. He said, the thirst of Jesus, his thirst for love and for souls is one of the major reasons for the mission and extraordinary significance of the woman the world knows as Mother Teresa. It is this thirst which explains the mission of Mother Teresa. She wrote in her spiritual testament, this is her little journals, that everything about the missionaries of charity is intended to quench the thirst of Jesus. As Mother Teresa stated, and I quote, as long as you do not know in a very intimate way that Jesus is thirsty for you, it will be impossible for you to know who he wants to be for you, nor who he wants you to be for him. As long as you do not know in a very intimate way that Jesus is thirsty for you, it will be impossible for you to know who he wants to be for you, nor who he wants you to be for him. I think there's a very real part of God's heart that still breaks. It still breaks, no longer just for his own needs, but now for the needs of others. Think of Jesus traveling with his disciples, seeing the city of Jerusalem from afar. And Jesus, according to Luke 19, he begins to become overwhelmed, overcome with emotion and weeping. In Matthew's gospel, it records some of what Jesus said about that city of Jerusalem, the city that he wept over. Jesus would say it this way, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, for so long I've desired to gather your chicks together as a hen gathers her chicks. I'm sorry, uh, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. He longed to rescue them, to care for them. And he would later explain, he said, if you'd only known that sudden destruction is coming, but you have overlooked your salvation. They failed to see that he was their rescuer, their redeemer. My friends, there's a part of Jesus, I believe, that still suffers. Because there's still those who are facing a looming destruction, who are overlooking their salvation. As Peter would write, he'd say that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In a sense, you could say that Jesus still thirsts. That his desire is yet to be fully met. Because Jesus thirsts for souls. His, his desire is for all men and women to be saved. Which means that if you want to meet his need to quench his thirst, then it means that you, you have to give yourself to him. The thing he longs for most is to rescue, redeem creation, to restore it back to its prior glory. And you are the pinnacle of that creation, the ones he made in his image. He longs for you for you to know him, to be rescued by him. He longs for people. If you want to meet his need and quench his thirst, then, then share that good news with others. Tell people about Jesus, the living water. Jesus said this of himself, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, we need to land the plane, so close your Bible. One final thought, I can't help but wonder, I really can't, who the soldier was who got Jesus a drink in this moment. But for the soldier who comes to his aid, he was so busy performing his kind act that he forgot to leave his name with the gospel writers. 
But undoubtedly, there's at least one place where his name was not overlooked and would never, ever be forgotten. And that's in heaven, where one day Jesus will reward him and say to him, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. It's amazing because those are the same things that you and I can hear. As scripture says, Jesus had said that there will be many who receive a reward in heaven and they will ask why. And Jesus responds, Matthew 25 says that I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then they will say, it says, well, when did we see you naked? When did we help you? When did we visit you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And another place he said it this way, in whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water, In the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. My friends, I think we can quench his thirst if we'll be determined to go and meet their need. So who has God then placed in your life? Someone that he longs for, someone he thirsts for, someone he desires to be found. And what are the needs maybe that he's made you aware of that he's placed right in front of you? Can you be a part of their solution? Can can you be a support for someone who's hurting in a moment like this? Who has God placed in front of you that's crying out like Jesus, saying that there's a longing in their heart that they thirst? And how could he use you to begin to quench that deep thirst? Oh, it'll cost. It always costs us, doesn't it? The unnamed soldier shared the water from his own canteen, which doesn't seem like much until you're thirsty yourself. And then it's costly. And it may cost you materially or or monetarily, emotionally, or even cost you some of your time, maybe even this week. And maybe others won't see that cost, but you'll feel it. It may even be that someone who has suffered in a way that you have suffered is coming across your path. And for you to sit with them in their pain means re-entering your own. Oh, it'll cost you. But will you do it to relieve their thirst and to relieve his with it? See, in this moment, Jesus crying out, I thirst, is not merely proof that he identified with us in our suffering. It is undoubtedly a reminder that Jesus would, in this moment, become our substitute in that suffering. In this moment, Jesus isn't just merely identifying with us. This moment is about Jesus becoming our substitute for our sin. That is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus doesn't just know us, but that he replaced us. And then he gave to us what was right about him, the righteousness of God transferred to us, that God sees us as right, as whole. And all that was wrong about us transferred to Jesus on a cross. Cursed is him who hangs upon the tree, they said. Jesus, having the crown of thorns, the physical manifestation of the curse in the Garden of Eden, beaten into his brow, the thorns the byproduct of that curse, Jesus, the king who would bear the curse himself. That is the beauty of the gospel, God doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Jesus, what a beautiful moment, crying out, just thirsty. And so, Father, we pray, so very thankful that you would suffer, choose to suffer, not to hide yourself from it, not to be distant, but to come near and to suffer. God, we thank you that that leaves us with such confidence that you understand us and love us and that you're able to aid us who are suffering. Jesus, I believe the thing you long for most is for us to give ourselves to you. 
And so Jesus, before we come with hands full saying, so we'll give our service or give our money or our time, we'll give all of the, no, Jesus, we'll give ourselves, all of ourselves as a living sacrifice, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for what you'd endure for us. And God, I pray especially for those who came in here weary today and isolated in their pain. Today, Jesus, they'd see you are God enough to save and rescue, but you are human enough simultaneously to understand. Jesus, I pray that they would sense that you have pulled up a chair with them, next to them, to sit with them in that pain today. Jesus, may they experience the God who is near the brokenhearted, but also the God who is powerful and capable of rescuing and saving. Jesus, we look your direction and are so very thankful for you. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.